This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy to assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. On Tuesday morning, UK time, almost a year since Joe Biden oversaw the withdrawal of US troops from Afghanistan, we learned that a CIA drone strike on the capital city Kabul had killed the man at the top of al-Qaeda, the successor of Osama bin Laden, Ayman al-Zawahiri. Now, justice has been delivered. Not even 48 hours later, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi, defied both the Chinese government and the White House by landing in Taiwan and promising that America is committed to the security of the country, which China argues is a breakaway region that belongs to Beijing. We will not abandon our commitment to Taiwan and we are proud of our enduring friendship. It's been a huge week for US foreign policy, but has it been a successful one? I'm Jonathan Friedland, columnist at The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly America. Always beware of August. Um, as a veteran of the Gulf War, I, I remember that well. Philip Crowley is the former U.S. Assistant Secretary of State for Public Affairs under Barack Obama. Back in 2011, he publicly criticised the Pentagon for the alleged mistreatment of Chelsea Manning, the U.S. soldier convicted of providing the whistleblower website WikiLeaks with classified diplomatic cables. He resigned soon afterwards. So Philip Crowley knows a thing or two about defying the White House. There's a considerable difference between being an assistant secretary of state uh, and being the speaker of the House and the number three member of, uh, of the government. Um, I, I happen to feel that Nancy Pelosi made the only decision that was politically viable here in the United States. You know, once China made its opposition to her travel so public, you know, for uh, for her or for the Biden administration to reschedule that. You know, I, I think would have provided a a weapon that uh, Republicans would be more than happy to use in 2022 and 2024. Let's just talk then about this um, specific uh, visit. The most senior U.S. politician to visit Taiwan in 25 years, Nancy Pelosi, has said America will never abandon the island during a trip that's been condemned as a major provocation by China. I want to get into the politics of all that in a minute, but just for now, bring us up to speed on the situation in Taiwan, but particularly the American view of it. Well, as a as a matter of diplomatic practice going back to 1979, the United States um, has seen China 
as, for example, the holder of the uh, seat, uh, permanent seat on the UN Security Council. But in 1979, it cut off formal diplomatic relations you know, with Taiwan. But then Congress passed the Taiwan Relations Act. And a, a real question is whether that policy is now dated. The presumption all along was that the U.S. one China policy was based on the aspiration that as China developed, as China became more prosperous, it would also become more or less more democratic. Um, Just explain for people who are not uh, across the, the terminology, explain that notion, the one China policy. The United States has a one China policy, believing that Taiwan is a part of mainland China, but that uh, the status of Taiwan as a autonomously governed entity, you know, should never be changed by force. So the aspiration was that as China developed, it would it would actually begin to look more like Taiwan. But as we see over the past uh, uh, several years under President Xi, it has become more prosperous and more autocratic. And so into the middle of this policy that that probably is showing some rust comes Nancy Pelosi to demonstrate you know, her support for Taiwan as a democratic entity, not necessarily as an independent entity. And obviously that has riled the leadership in Beijing. Because until now, the United States has maintained, again, in a term of sort of Washington jargon, strategic ambiguity, keeping it vague what exactly America's response would be if there was any change in Taiwan status. And that delicate balance is what in some ways has been disrupted this week. Well, the the, the aspect of strategic ambiguity has meaning on both sides. It, it is to say to, to Beijing, if you use force to change the status of Taiwan, we reserve the right to come to Taiwan's defense. And Joe Biden has been vocal in that. We agree with a one China policy. We signed on to it. And all the attendant agreements made from there. But the idea that that it can be taken by force, just taken by force, is just not is just not appropriate. It will dislocate the entire region and be another action similar to what happened in in uh, in Ukraine. And so it's a it's a burden that is even there is this equilibrium that essentially says keep things as they are. It is absolutely to keep things as they are, to to maintain a status quo and then hope that both sides will evolve in a way that is peaceful. And so then Nancy Pelosi obviously has a history of being robust on this issue of Taiwan and its democratic representative nature, announces that she's, or it becomes known that she wants to make this visit. The, the crucial question, I suppose, is why did she want to make that visit and particularly why now? Well, she was actually supposed to visit Taiwan earlier in the year. She developed COVID, so this was postponed. Yes, Nancy Pelosi is a fervent defender of Taiwan. She is a fervent critic of China and its human rights policy. Congress continues to take bold bipartisan action to defend human rights in China and hold the Chinese government accountable. And I, I think, to, I mean, step back for a second. If you look at this strategically, there are three major power competitions in the world today. You know, one is the United States and Russia. And obviously, given 
you know, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, it does bring the issue of Taiwan, you know, into immediate focus because there are so many parallels between the two. You know, obviously the rivalry with China, you know, and the U.S. struggle politically with itself. And, and, and so I think Nancy looked at these things, all three, and, and, and in her mind, you know, she determined that a visit to Taiwan, you know, was affirming across these three competitions. And I happen to agree with her. That's interesting, because I think the layperson would look at it and think, you've got enough trouble at the moment dealing with Russia, Ukraine. Why poke the hornet's nest of Beijing in terms of relationship with Taiwan right now? You know, we know that administrations often struggle to cope with more than one crisis at once. And if this was just simmering away, wouldn't it have been better to keep it that way? Well, I mean, I mean, uh, certainly the, the White House privately believed that what added to the risk here was the fact that Beijing is approaching this major you know, party congress where Xi is going to be cleared for a third term in office. So if you do something this overt, you, know, you risk that, that he, he would feel an obligation to respond in some meaningful way. And obviously, we're prepared for you know, Chinese military exercises in the coming days uh, and weeks. Taiwan's defense ministry says China has fired multiple ballistic missiles during a set of military exercises in the air and the sea encircling Taiwan. You know, and, and I think Beijing struggles to understand that, that the Congress is an independent legislative body and, and it's co-equal under our system. And so Nancy Pelosi is able to make her own decisions. The president may not like it, uh, but there's ultimately nothing he can do about it. Let me push you on that, because that's a key part of the story. This notion that the White House apparently opposed it, and she decided, look, she's, a, as you say, a separate branch of government. She can do her own thing. Some are sceptical about that, because they are. The crucial difference between now and the 1990s situation is that the president and the speaker are of the same party. And they're close politically. They're close political allies. So people think, was there perhaps some coordination? Is the White House opposition more public than real? Uh, and if so, is there some kind of good cop, bad cop routine where Joe Biden gets gets to keep more of the strategic ambiguity while Nancy Pelosi gets to send a message? Quite possibly. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the president did wade into this indirectly by saying publicly that the military opposed this. He never said that he did. So I think he was reserving some wiggle room there are some critics of the president who say, you know, he he should have had a private conversation with Nancy Pelosi. He probably did uh, and and not make this a public issue at all so that he could preserve, you know, the ability to convince her, you know, yes, you should go to Taiwan. Now is not the time. But I think this is where this this third aspect does come into play when you're president of the United States. You know, you do pay attention. You, you own geopolitics in the world. And we like to think that there's a bright line between foreign policy and domestic politics. There really isn't, <laughs> you know, and, and we're, you know, coming up to the midterms here. Nancy Pelosi was squarely focused, not just on her history of criticism of China's human rights support for Taiwan, but she clearly understood that given Beijing's public opposition, you know, there really was not a choice here. You know, Nancy Pelosi is always used as a foil by Republicans on, on campaigns. This would be yet another one. Uh, if, she was, if she was seen to be buckling to Chinese pressure. Absolutely. So, so I, I do think that this is a perfect example of where not only th there's, there's a geopolitical rationale for 
there's a geopolitical rationale against, but there's a compelling political argument that said, once Beijing said, you can't go to to Taiwan, of course she had to turn around uh, and stop in Taipei as she did. So as would have been very predictable, uh, China has responded both with words of condemnation, but also, as I think you referred to, those military exercises in the area, sending a message to say, look, we are the big power in these waters, as it were. Given all that, given that it's now a done deal, it's a fait accompli, she has been and gone, what should the president do now? You're in this odd situation where Republicans have been cheering her move. Yeah, Republican senators coming out, led by uh, Senator Sullivan. Also, as well, you see Senator Mitch McConnell signing on to this press release. About two dozen or so Republican senators saying they support Speaker Pelosi. As if almost daring Joe Biden to be as strong as she has been. Uh, how do you think the White House should play this? Well, I, I, there's, there will be a little bit of theater on this on all sides. There, uh, obviously, Beijing is now compelled to respond. They threatened a fervent response, and they'll have to deliver something that at least provides optics of a response to their own people. And you think that will be more than just training exercises? Do you? I, I would hope not. I, I, you know, I think it'll be it'll be some sort of belligerent theater, but hopefully, it will not be something that is. Uh, that, that requires a, a, a further U.S. response. You know, certainly as you go through this, uh, the United States will probably send another carrier through the Taiwan Straits, you know, to make a point about freedom of navigation. But I'm sure quietly the administration is saying, OK, look, it happened. This is not something that happens all the time. You know, let's get through this, refocus, calm down and, and get back to trying to build a, a relationship that is sustainable you know, based on cooperation where you can, based on competition where, and there is competition, and, and let's figure this out. Do, do you think um, the president's messaging has been confusing? I mean, particularly on this question of the, of military action and whether or not the US would act to support Taiwan in the event of either an attempted invasion or military action by Beijing. Uh, I mean, we did hear Joe Biden saying words suggesting, yes, the US would be there militarily. In fact, we can hear that. Are you willing to get involved militarily to defend Taiwan if it comes to that? Yes. You are? That's a commitment we made. But listening to that, uh, Philip Crowley, what do you think? Um, uh, is, there, is there a lack of clarity? Is Joe Biden's position changing? Well, I mean, I, I think sometimes Joe Biden speaks from the heart, and that, that's what he has done multiple times where he said, hey, if, if China invades Taiwan, you know, we will come to Taiwan's defense. And, and I think it's important to understand that we are seeing the development of a model in Ukraine that certainly applies to, uh, to Taiwan as well. Are we likely to land Marines on the shores of Taiwan to defend Taiwan's beaches from a Chinese invasion? That's, that's the least likely scenario. But are we going to accelerate military support to Taiwan to give it the best chance to defend itself in, in the event of a Chinese incursion. Yes, that's the model that we're testing in Ukraine. You know, will it be as successful as we've seen in Ukraine? That's a really good question. Every time you run a, a, a war game, uh, Taiwan loses. Is that right? When you game it out, Taiwan is always the loser. When you game it out, the, you know, you know, China's growing you know, military weight you know, at some point overwhelms 
you know, Taiwan. But, but the, I, I think th- this is also cautionary to say to Beijing, look, you may succeed, but, but then again, if we start to do with respect to sanctions and other things that interrupts China's economic performance, which is critical to its political governorship, you know, th- this could go badly for you. And so, so, you know, in that sense, yes, there is ambiguity and that, that tends to work in the context of China and Taiwan, because ultimately Beijing, if it decides to do something meaningful, it wants to be assured of success. And, and that's not something that they can necessarily be confident in. I have to say, if anyone had ever forgotten that you, Philip Crowley, were once a spokesperson and a diplomat, your reference there to Joe Biden sometimes speaking from the heart when <laughs> others might say he had perhaps uh, misspoken, but instead it's speaking from the heart, uh, true to your uh, credentials as a spokesperson and diplomat. Now, as we said at the top, Philip Crowley, it has been a really big week uh, for foreign policy. In fact, the visit to Taiwan that you and I have been talking about managed to overshadow what I'm sure... Um, everyone in the Joe Biden White House would have hoped would be the big story of the week. And that is that on Monday night in Washington, D.C., President Biden was able to announce in a live televised address from the White House that a U.S. drone strike in Afghanistan had killed the al-Qaeda leader Ayman al-Zawahiri. People around the world no longer needed to fear the vicious and determined killer. The United States continues to demonstrate our resolve and our capacity to defend the American people against those who seek to do us harm. Uh, As far as we know, um, there were no casualties there, certainly no long-term presence required for American troops in Kabul to, or even short-term, to pull this off. But just take us into the mind of the military planners and the president himself. Why go after this target and this target now? simply because we found out where he was. This has been a quest uh, going back, uh, you know, 20 years. And, you know, it's been over 10 years since bin Laden was killed and, and multiple presidents have said, if we find these guys and they're threatening the United States, and they are, you know, we will take them out. And it, it was uh, it's meaningful for Joe Biden to be able to stand there and said, we promised that we'd find you. We did. And uh, we will continue to do this as long as uh, as you threaten the United States. Obviously, the political complication for President Biden is that, uh, yes, we found him, but we found him in the center of Kabul. And uh, just a year ago, he when announcing the withdrawal of American troops, you know, he had said that, you know, al-Qaeda is no longer in Afghanistan in a meaningful way. So it, it, it is an affirmation of the, of the administration's counterterrorism strategy that you don't need thousands of troops on the ground anywhere to make meaningful progress in the uh, what we call the war on terror. But, uh, but obviously, it is a reminder that the president's Afghan withdrawal has not necessarily unfolded as he anticipated. Because the success of 2022 in some ways only draws attention to the failure of 2021, the two Augusts uh, there, because what's happened now shows that there was a price to be paid for leaving Kabul in the sense that someone like Zawahiri could find a new base in Afghanistan. Well, I mean, it's a, it's a complicated issue and, and, and complexity doesn't always play as you anticipate when it comes to politics. I mean, Joe Biden was right that we were we found ourselves in Afghanistan not fighting Al Qaeda directly. We found ourselves in the middle of an Afghan civil war, and one that we could obviously could not influence. We could not adequately protect the existing Afghan government, nor could we adequately prevent the 
the dramatic Taliban move to Kabul just over a, a year ago. But obviously, while it was successful, it was chaotic. And, and the, the scenes of airplanes taking off with people running down the runway is, is one of those enduring images that it never leaves you. And do you think it's the memory of those images of the chaos of August 2021, which accounts for the fact that there has been much less media coverage and sort of impact and in some ways, you know, jubilation in America domestically, little fanfare this time, compared to that announcement from uh, Barack Obama about announcing the death of bin Laden in 2011? Or is there more to it than that? Well, a a lot has happened since 9-11. 20 years ago, Al-Qaeda was the magic brand, right? 20 years later, it's the Islamic State or some offshoot of it. Yes, it's a global brand, global movement, you know, in a, in a broad sense. But, uh, but the, the, the threats in many respects regarding these kinds of groups is now far more local than global. People have seen that things in Afghanistan themselves have either not improved or gone backward. I'm thinking of women's rights uh, to education, their you know, role in public life, the rise of extreme poverty. The Taliban is also being hit hard by the dire conditions. Many of them haven't been paid since they took control of the country last year. A takeover that halted international aid that once poured into Afghanistan, tipping the country into economic freefall. Does all of that just add to, even after the sort of sugar rush of people, Americans' delight in seeing the back of al-Zawahiri, once that's faded, does all of that too, alongside the chaos, those reports of, of deep trouble in Afghanistan, again, undermine Joe Biden because it suggests this thing was a failure? I, I, I don't think it does. I mean, notwithstanding the chaos, the, uh, the American people have broadly supported the president's decision, which obviously was just implementing an agreement that had been negotiated by the Trump administration. The, the president has taken some political hit for the way in which the withdrawal proceeded. He has not actually taken any political hit for the decision to leave. I think this is a major problem for the Taliban because they signed an agreement saying we're not going to allow you know, Afghanistan to be a haven for you know, uh, terrorists uh, who could threaten the United States and its allies. And yet we find a year later, here's Zawahiri. That's a real problem for the Taliban as they seek to find a way to establish a sustainable relationship with the international community. I'm trying to work out how one should read then this week, whether this is a demonstration of strength by the Americans. Nancy Pelosi did not back down. She went uh, to Taiwan. Uh, and yes, this you know, high value target being struck by the Americans. Is this a big lift for the Biden administration? Or does one, the Afghanistan thing, just draw attention to the underlying problems there? And maybe the other, China, just is actually storing up problems further down the road, even perhaps exacerbating problems. How should we read the week for Joe Biden on foreign policy? Oh, it's been an excellent week for Joe Biden uh, on foreign policy and a pretty good week for Joe Biden on domestic policy as well. I, I think probably if this were 2024, you'd have real momentum, you know, assuming Joe Biden is running for re-election as he says he is. This would provide great momentum. It is unusual for foreign policy to have a profound impact on 
on you know, American politics. The economy will be much more uh, a decisive issue, the Supreme Court as well. You know, but but the problem for Joe Biden is this is 2022, you know, and we're, we're, we're approaching midterm. So, you know, the, the presidents will get some lift out of this, how that translates in terms of of races for the House of Representatives and the Senate. That's an indirect benefit. That's a little bit harder to calculate. I'm glad you've got us to domestic politics. And I know this is, as you said before, it is one of the three big competitions that you um, focus on. Uh, We like on this podcast to ask a what else question, something completely different to uh, the rest of our conversation. Uh, Your book refers to its title, uh, refers to America's fractured politics. And few issues are more fracturing, more polarising than abortion. This week, I think it caused some surprise. The very conservative state of Kansas had had a vote on abortion rights, uh, and voters in Kansas rejected a constitutional amendment uh, that would have given state lawmakers the chance to either further restrict or ban abortions in the state. All this coming after that Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe versus Wade. You know, Joe Biden himself signed an executive order that aims to protect um, abortion rights more. What's your read of how this will play out in in the autumn? Uh, Are pro-choice advocates, are Democrats right to take some cheer from that Kansas vote and think that this issue, abortion rights and the Supreme Court decision, might actually motivate and galvanise voters to upend expectations of big Republican wins and perhaps deliver a, a bluer verdict, a better for the Democrats in the autumn? Well, it, 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 it's a very interesting case. And, and you know, there, there was a book 10 or 15 years ago, What's happened? What's Happening in Kansas. What's the Matter with Kansas, it was called. Yeah, What's the Matter with Kansas. And, and so it, it, it documented the shift from a a state that was conservative and yet balanced politically, you know, to one that became, you know, for a period of time, one of the more red states uh, in America. And and now perhaps you've seen it hit the far wall and starting to, to carry back. Um, it, 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 it is a, a fascinating, you know, movement, how they did it. Uh, and I'm sure um, in, in other states where you've got now with the Supreme Court decision, you know, the battles move to individual states and how they're going to define what's legal, what's not. You've got the issue of whether somebody in one state can travel to another state. You know, this this is going to play out very dramatically over the next few months and the next two years. And this is, uh, I'm, I'm sure, you know, for those on the Democratic side, this is uh, very encouraging and something they're going to copy uh, in other instances. Philip Crowley, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast this week. Always a pleasure. And that's all from me for this week. There'll be a link so that you can find Philip's book on the description page for today's episode. That book, Red Line, American Foreign Policy in a Time of Fractured Politics and Failing States. Listen out next week as our sister podcast, Today in Focus, will be speaking to Jason Burke and Emma Graham Harrison about the ramifications for Afghanistan of the Al-Zawahiri killing. My terrific colleague Joni Grieve will be holding the fort. She'll be in the chair for the next couple of weeks, so do make sure to tune in for that. But for now, it is goodbye. The producer was Danielle Stevens, the executive producer, Maz Ebtahaj. I'm Jonathan Friedland. Thanks, as always, for listening. This is The Guardian.
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Some places take you away. Some bring you together. Marathon does both. Marathon is Florida's family key with something for everyone. You'll find museums and wildlife refuges, wide open beaches, miles of warm, clear water, and the historic Seven Mile Bridge. For more about Marathon and the latest safety protocols, visit flakeys.com slash marathon.